Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Compañero Víctor Orcasita. Last time on The Crisis. In March 2001, Valmore Lucano and Victor Orcasita, two union leaders who work at the Drummond Company coal mines in Colombia, are murdered. After the killings, the workers go on strike for several days, and company leaders respond with statements of shock and sorrow. Y tenemos las esperanzas de poder seguir adelante en esta situación, pero repito, estamos muy compungidos. But at this point, no one has taken responsibility. Ese día, pues, para mí sentí yo que que estar también en una organización era también complicado. In the weeks after the murders, Juan Carlos Rojas described having the symptoms of PTSD. He couldn't eat or drink. He didn't go out. It got to the point that he was hospitalized. Entonces, fue grave, fue, fue bastante, y es todavía after the murders, he noticed people would treat the Drummond workers differently. When they got on a bus, people would get off. When they showed up to a party, the party would end. People also left the union. Some fled the country for their safety. Todo el mundo no quería saber nada del sindicato. Ninguno quería saber nada. Entonces yo decía, pero si ninguno quiere saber y si estos compañeros dieron la vida por nosotros. And no one wants to step into the role as president of the union. Except this one man, Gustavo Soler. He's the person who called both Elisa and Yaneth to tell them their husbands had been murdered. And about two months after the murders, Gustavo Soler becomes the new president of the union. I'm Agnes Walton, and this is The Crisis. Chapter 2, Witnesses. been uh, working on this case for almost 20 years. Terry Collingsworth is the American lawyer who eventually took on the case, working alongside several other lawyers in Colombia and the U.S. And this case, in turn, took over Terry's life in some ways. In the beginning, Terry says he took the case out of principle. 
Terry grew up around labor organizing. His dad and uncle worked in a Cleveland copper mill, and both of them were members of the union. Yeah, the union and the people in the union were pretty much our, our life. These people knew they had job security because of the union. They had dignity because of the union. You could tell they felt respected. The mid-1950s was the height of union power in the U.S. A third of the workforce belonged to a union. But what Terry remembers about the union were the Christmas parties. I had three brothers. We would go with my dad and mom down to some hall, the union hall that uh, they rented uh, in downtown Cleveland. And there would be entertainment and a good meal. And then they would give us all nice gifts as kids. When Terry turned 18, he joined his dad working at the copper mill and in the union. He was also taking classes at the local community college and applied to Duke Law School, thinking he might become a union lawyer. On the very first day, the dean was giving the, you know, the welcoming speech. And he starts reading the bios the students submitted. He was listing like the high credentialed people, you know, began like, well, we have a very distinguished class. And then near the end, he said, and we have one uh, factory worker from Cleveland, Ohio, who was in the machinist union or something like that. But I, I wore that proudly. I was very happy to be there. After Terry finishes law school, he works at a corporate law firm. And he does a bit of teaching. He gets a grant to tour American-owned factories in Asia and observe labor practices. And he starts to think about how American companies could be held accountable even after they move abroad and open up offices away from the U.S. and outside the jurisdiction of the American legal system. Like, they didn't have any unions. They could pay people whatever they could get away with. They had no safety requirements and so on. That that's when I, the light went on for me. American companies often operated in countries with weak labor laws, plentiful natural resources, and where the courts were either corrupt or incredibly slow. On Monday, Chiquita admitted it had paid off the group United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, which is considered a terrorist organization by the United States government. The workers revived the exit union in 1975. Marta Torres was forced into exile for her participation. Coca-Cola Company has been for us in Guatemala a symbol of oppression, of disrespect for human rights, for human dignity. Lawyers in Terry's field were trying to figure out if there was anything on the books that could help them catch American companies abroad, to hold them responsible for crimes and human rights abuses that technically were happening outside the jurisdiction of U.S. courts. Around 1979, they unearthed an almost 200-year-old law that had been written to deal with international disputes, including piracy. It's called the Alien Tort Statute. And it was passed by the first Congress in 1789. The law said that an alien... An alien may sue in tort for violations of the laws of nations. Those are all things that every civilized country in the world agrees is illegal and a violation of international law. Which lawyers interpret to mean that if someone is harmed by an American company abroad, they can sue that company in the United States. It created a right for foreigners to sue if they suffered an injury even if it was not in the territory of the United States, if it was offshore. 
and Terry takes his 200-year-old law and runs with it. Terry sues a California company on behalf of Burmese victims of forced labor. He sues ExxonMobil in Indonesia for allegedly paying the military to run security around their natural gas facility where troops beat and tortured local villagers. He sues Nestle for alleged child labor abuses in the Ivory Coast. He helps bring a suit against Chiquita Bananas for allegedly paying paramilitary death squads in Colombia, but that case was dismissed. Over the years, Terry sues more than a dozen corporations under the Alien Tort Statute. And so when Terry hears about a series of murders of union members in Colombia in 2001, he decides that this is going to be his next big case. In October, only six months after officially becoming the new president of the union, Gustavo Soler is kidnapped from a public bus in broad daylight. The next day, his body is found. He's been shot. That makes him the third Drummond Union leader to be killed that year. More after the break. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Terry decides to take on the case on behalf of the union and the families of the murdered men. He starts visiting Colombia to try and learn the story of the murders and gather potential witnesses for his case. It was dangerous. I mean, at that time, I'm sure the State Department warned you not to go. Uh, it just was in the air. The civil conflict was raging. In 2000, the U.S. had approved a multi-billion dollar military aid program known as Plan Colombia. It was aimed at helping the Colombian government eradicate the guerrillas and drug cartels. Two years later, the staunchly conservative Alvaro Uribe was elected president of Colombia on a promise of law and order and a fast victory against these guerrillas. And that crackdown emboldened the paramilitaries. A nationwide dirty war was unleashed against anyone seen as oppositional to Uribe's campaign. Union leaders were prime targets. By 2002, the violence was at an all-time high. 14,000 civilians were killed. It was the deadliest year in the Civil War. It was a very tense place. People were terrified and pretty much did not go out. But the union members still agreed to meet with Terry. One of them was Juan Carlos, who had watched as his friend Valmore was pulled off a bus and shot. By this point, 
Juan Carlos says, Everyone involved feared that the paramilitaries were capable of pretty much anything, and they had no idea what they might try to do. Terry tries to convince the union members and their families to testify in court for the case. But nobody wants to be seen out with Terry, like at a restaurant or at a bar, talking to him. So they decide they'll meet him in another city, which is several hours away from the mines. What I do remember very clearly and also viscerally, emotionally, is that everybody in that room was terrified. Fifteen people crowd into Terry's small hotel room. Two of the most prominent union leaders in the country were just pulled off a bus in broad daylight and murdered. If you could kill someone like Valmari Locarno in broad daylight and get away with it, then these other guys who were much less prominent and visible certainly saw their names on a tombstone too. They wanted to know how we could protect them. Terry agrees to keep anyone anonymous who wants to be, to protect their identities. A lot of these people still worked at Drummond or had family members living in the area. I was like, you know, this is going to be dangerous. Here's what I think we can do to minimize the danger. But everyone, you know, involved has to understand that we're taking on some very dangerous and powerful forces here. Pero se encontró también con un con un monstruo que 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 grande. Juan Carlos says he could see then that what Terry was about to go up against was much bigger than he probably realized at the time. Que no, no es cualquier papa. Es una papa caliente. So Terry starts to build his case. He speaks to union member after union member, and eventually he finds one who worked at the gas station on the mine site, who will later testify that he saw the paramilitaries, and specifically the men who killed Victor and Valmore. We had uh, several uh, workers who themselves saw paramilitaries uh, patrolling and, and getting free gas, going into the, uh, the canteen. A former crew supervisor from Drummond, one of the American managers in Colombia, contacts Terry. He saw a news article that we were suing Drummond. This man says he wants to testify, that he can speak to the way managers treated union members. And he later testifies in federal court that he was personally told by higher-ups not to trust the union. And then, Terry hears about Drummond's chief of security. A guy named Jim Adkins. Jim Adkins was a former CIA agent. In 1986 and 87, he worked for the CIA in Central America during the Iran-Contra scandal. That's when the Reagan administration sold weapons to Iran to help them wage a war against Iraq and then secretly and illegally funneled some of that money to the anti-communist cocaine-dealing Contras in Nicaragua. The Contras were an illegal armed group, and Adkins was stationed in neighboring Honduras, where the CIA was running operations. The disclosures from President Reagan's former national security advisor didn't stop there. McFarlane also detailed just how involved President Reagan was in getting around Congress for secret aid to the Nicaraguan rebels, also, Mr. Reagan's secret policy and arms dealings with Iranians. An independent council assigned by Congress later found that Adkins himself was part of all this, that he had approved missions to bring the secret aid to the Contras, and Adkins was forced to resign. 
and then later he was hired by Drummond. One union member tells Terry he has first-hand information that could make or break Terry's case. He was a minor officer of the union. He writes a sworn statement that he had seen paramilitary members on Drummond property getting water and filling up gas. He also claims that he'd seen a check made out to a paramilitary leader and signed by a Drummond employee. He's meant to be one of Terry's star witnesses, the guy who'll connect all the dots. But then things start to fall apart. The witness stops answering Terry's phone calls. He never even uh, contacted me. He just They just disappeared. So his declaration is never allowed to be used as evidence because, the judge points out, he's not likely to be available for trial. We started the trial knowing that we didn't have our star witnesses, if you will. I still held out hope that the right jury would be uh, sympathetic and would find our circumstantial evidence to be enough. And so six years after the murders, Terry finally brings the case to court in Alabama, where Drummond is based. He's using the alien tort statute, and the lawsuit he brings accuses the company of aiding and abetting a war crime. The suit alleges that the president of Drummond in Colombia, Augusto Jimenez, with the knowledge of executives in the U.S., paid the paramilitaries to kill three union leaders, Valmori Locano, Victor Urcasita, and Gustavo Soler. Drummond no negocia con grupos al margen de la ley. Drummond responds that none of what Terry's suit says is true. Drummond manifiesta públicamente que no ha hecho ni hará pagos, acuerdos o transacciones con grupos al margen de la ley that Drummond does not negotiate with terrorist groups like the paramilitaries and that they have never and would never pay them. Drummond reitera, como lo expresó oportunamente cuando se asesinó a los sindicalistas, que lamenta este suceso. And they reiterate what they said when Valmori and Victor were killed, that they regret that the murders happened and they had no part in it. A month later, Drummond and Terry meet in court in Alabama. And the case finally goes to trial. And we try to contact Drummond's chief of security in Colombia, former CIA agent Jim Adkins. Hello, um, yes. Mr. Adkins? Yes, speaking. Hi, how are you? Uh, my name is Ramon Campos and I'm with Vice. How are, how are you doing? Is, uh, do you have a second to talk? No, I, listen, I, I, I don't trust any, anybody. The Crisis is a production of Vice News. 
It's hosted by me, Sarah Quevedo, Ramon Campos, and Agnes Walton. It's produced by me and Ashley Cleek, who is our senior producer. Reporting by Ramon Campos, Agnes Walton, me, and Ashley Cleek. Adriana Tapia is also our producer. Adriana Rodriguez is our associate producer. And thanks to Jesse Alejandro Cottrell for additional production support. Sound design by Ben Cruz-Kaya. Original scoring also by Ben Cruz-Kaya. With additional music from Dominica Records and Bogota, Colombia. Translation and editorial consulting by Diego Salazar. Annie Aviles is our executive producer. Kate Osborne is the VP of Vice Audio. Janet Lee is our senior production manager. Production coordination from Stephanie Brown. Special thanks to Maximo Anderson and Jeff Peer for fact-checking. 